0: According to the British, George Washington was just some guy they never heard of. General Thomas Gage, commander of British troops in America in the early days of the Revolution, made a point of not addressing George Washington by his rank and made sure that no one else did either. Although he was following official British military policy of not giving validity to anyone in rebellion against the Crown, General Gage did it with a kind of insufferable arrogance, all out of proportion to the situation at hand. I wonder why. Well, maybe it's because George Washington once saved his life. Let's face it. George Washington started the French and Indian War. This is awkward. It's not really something we like to talk about over here in the States. He was commissioned as a major in the Virginia militia in 1753 by the colonial governor and sent to modern-day Erie, Pennsylvania with a message from the British king for the French, who were building forts, making settlements, and bribing the Indians to go forth and wreak havoc upon British subjects. The message was, get out. The French officers received him with all civility, and the two parties engaged in a legalistic discussion of land rights. Washington had the original charter of the Virginia Company in 1606 on his side, which set Virginia's western boundary at the Pacific Ocean. And the French had La Salle's exploration of the Ohio Country, which was much of the land between the Allegheny Mountains and the Mississippi River, a hundred years earlier. They sent Washington back with a nicely worded letter that boiled down to, we ain't leaving. The Virginia House of Burgesses appropriated funds to form a regiment of colonial soldiers, with Washington as second in command at the rank of lieutenant colonel. In 1754, he went at the head of 160 troops to secure the area where the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers met. The French held the strategic location and were building a fort. Washington, along with his Indian allies, led by Tanacharison, also known as Half King, encountered a French patrol of thirty-two soldiers. They surrounded and attacked them, handily winning what was later called the Battle of Jumonville Glen. The French commander, and you'll have to pardon my French, Joseph Coulon de Villiers, sieur de Jumonville, was mortally wounded. While Washington watched, the Half King said, Thou art not yet dead, my father split de Jumonville's skull with his hatchet, pulled out his brain, and washed his hands with the gory mixture. His warriors then scalped the wounded French officers, decapitated one of them, and put his head on a pike. This action, and Washington's published account of it, made him America's first genuine war hero, and started the war between France, England, their Indian allies, and American colonists. The accidental death of the Virginia Regiment's commander put Washington in charge at the rank of colonel. He built Fort Necessity in what the French considered their territory, modern-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and dug in to defend it. Virginia sent British reinforcements. When they arrived there, Captain and Washington got into an argument about who was really in charge. British Captain McKay believed that his commission in the British Army beat Washington's colonial colonelcy. The question was never really settled. On July 3, a force of Indians and French, led by a Captain de Villiers, brother of the murdered de Jumonville, attacked, inflicting heavy casualties. The French offered terms of surrender, the Articles of Capitulation, which also accused the British and Colonials of assassinating de Juminville, who they claimed was on a diplomatic mission. Washington's signature on this document confirmed for the French that de Jumonville had been murdered instead of killed in battle, and that the British were the aggressors in the opening of the French and Indian War. Washington later claimed that his French translator didn't fully explain the articles of capitulation properly. Armistice safety tip number 257. Always make sure you can trust your translator. Although Washington emerged with his reputation intact after these debacles, the Virginia Regiment was disbanded and he was faced with demotion or resignation. He chose the latter and retained his rank of Colonel. In 1755, the British dispatched General Edward Braddock with the largest military force ever seen on the continent to take Fort Duquesne, also in modern day Pittsburgh, which I now really wanna go visit and see what all the fuss was about, seize French forts on the Great Lakes, roll on up into French Canada and conquer it for his Britannic majesty. This plan sounded pretty good on paper. Braddock and his redcoat regulars had no inkling of the savagery and unruliness of frontier fighting. The general also managed to alienate the colonial governments of Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania by demanding funds for his expedition. Then he informed the Indians that their claims to land in the disputed territory were worthless, and what's more, he didn't need their help in the campaign. The French were more than happy to have the Indians come over to their side. Washington, who had gone back to Mount Vernon, wrote Braddock's chief of staff asking for an appointment to the expedition. Although he argued for the rank of colonel, since that had been his rank in the militia, he got captain, which would have to be good enough. Braddock's chief of staff assured him that as an aide de camp, rank would be a non-issue. Either way, if Washington wanted to go along on the biggest military expedition ever seen in America, he would have to accept it. He proved his value early on, once he started to realize that Braddock's decisions were dooming the expedition to failure. The troops and their extensive supply chain were making agonizingly slow progress through the heavily wooded country, having to build the road they traveled on as they went. The stragglers at the end of the baggage train were routinely killed and scalped by French Allied Indians, which meant the French knew exactly where the British were and where they were going. Washington recommended that a detachment of 1,200 lightly equipped troops he sent forward at full speed to Fort Duquesne. Braddock took Washington's advice. This advanced column stumbled into a force of 900 French and Indian troops who recovered quickly, stayed sheltered in the woods, and poured fire into the British and colonials. The Redcoats formed a in rows in a clearing as they had been trained and were cut down pretty easily. The Virginians ended up caught in a crossfire between the British and the Indians, and many were killed by friendly fire. Washington said, They behaved like men and died like soldiers. The British regulars, including a Captain Thomas gage, broke and ran as sheep before hounds, according to Washington. General Braddock was mortally wounded. Daniel Boone, in charge of the horses in the British baggage train, managed to escape unhurt and go on to further adventures. Washington rallied his militia to provide cover for the retreating redcoats. He had two horses shot out from under him and four musket balls pierced his coat, but he got out without a scratch. With Braddock and his senior officers dead and the British regulars demoralized by their defeat, Washington essentially assumed command during the retreat back to safety. Before dying, Braddock asked Washington to personally handle his burial, which did not sit well with the English troops, including Captain Gage. Washington buried Braddock in the middle of the road and ran wagons over the spot to prevent his body from being desecrated. The blame for the massacre at the Monongahela landed squarely on Braddock, whose European way of fighting, and his gifting of Indian allies to the French, was widely seen as the cause of the defeat. George Washington, once tales of his bravery got out, was again a hero. The Virginia House of Burgesses voted money to raise a regiment and made Washington its commander, restoring his rank of colonel. Captain Thomas Gage, lucky to be alive, was assigned to other British forces engaged against the French participating in a series of English defeats before recommending a regiment of light infantry be formed to better adapt to frontier-style warfare. Now, where did he get that idea from? This was approved, and despite Gage's participation in the disastrous Battle of Carrion in 1758, he was made a brigadier general. By 1763, he was appointed commander-in-chief of North America. He and Washington were going to meet again. Fast forward to 1775. The British are holed up in Boston, surrounded by the Continental Army. While Washington was still on his way to take command, the British suffered astounding losses at the Battle of Bunker Hill. American newspapers wrote about a connection between Braddock's defeat at the Monongahela and the current slaughter at Bunker Hill, implying that the same man who had once rescued the Redcoats from their straight-laced European way of fighting could now defeat them with an army of amateurs. Brace yourself, Gage he's on his way. General Gage's tenure as commander-in-chief was not going well. He misjudged the early colonial reactions to the Stamp Act, thinking that the unrest was due to a small number of elites led by Boston radicals. He wrote, America is a mere bully from one end to the other, and the Bostonians are by far the greatest bullies. He ordered more troops to New York and Boston, which led in part to the Boston Massacre of 1770. He was appointed military governor of Massachusetts in 1774 and brought most of the British forces in America to Boston. He tried to abort the meeting of the First Continental Congress by trying to bribe, among others, John Hancock and Samuel Adams. This did not work. When the battles for Boston began after Lexington and Concord, Gage offered amnesty to the rebels, except for John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Gage was likely peeved about that bribe thing. The Battle of Bunker Hill, although technically a British victory, it was said in London that a few more such victories would ruin them, was a disaster for Gage. Ironically, he wrote the English Secretary of War that these people show a spirit and conduct against us they never showed against the French. Interesting. Who was covering your back while you were running away from the French that one time? Gage believed that a rebel was a rebel was a rebel. When captured Americans fell into his custody, he had them thrown in a common jail under horrific conditions. In August 1775, newly arrived General Washington sent his old pal a letter to protest their treatment. He said, I understand that the officers engaged in the cause of liberty in their country, who by the fortune of war have fallen into your hands, have been indiscriminately thrown into a common jail appropriated for felons, that no consideration has been had for those of the most respectable rank. He went on to express his hope that Gage would have dictated a more tender treatment of those individuals whom chance or war has put in your power. Perhaps remembering Gage's personality from their service two decades earlier, Washington moved on to a threat. For the future, I shall regulate my conduct toward those gentlemen who are or may be in our possession exactly by the rule which you shall observe toward those of ours who may be in your custody. If severity and hardship mark the line of your conduct, Your prisoners will feel its effects. He ended on a positive note, telling Gage that if American prisoners were handled with kindness and humanity, he would do the same with his British captives. The opener of Gage's reply stated, I acknowledge no rank that is not derived from the king. All right, then. Game on, Gage. Gage then proceeded to lecture Washington about his political and social duties to the soldiers of the king who were asserting the rights of the state, the law of the land, the being of the constitution. His position was that the rebels were criminals and would be treated that way. The Redcoats in Washington's custody were the lawful agents of the crown and should be accorded every dignity. Gage complained to Washington that British captives were laboring like Negro slaves to gain their daily subsistence. Washington replied in a letter that was widely circulated. You affect, sir, to despise all rank not derived from the same source with your own. I cannot conceive any more honorable than that which flows from the uncorrupted choice of a brave and free people, the purest source and original fountain of all power. He diplomatically avoided suggesting that, without him, Gage might be under that road in Pennsylvania with General Braddock. Gage was relieved of command shortly thereafter. His successors were no better when it came to addressing Washington by his rank, and they lacked even the motivation of having their lives saved by their now adversary. General Howe, the next British commander, sent letters addressed to the Honorable George Washington and George Washington Esquire as if he was some kind of accounting clerk. Eventually, the Continental Congress ordered that any British military communications that did not reference Washington's rank would be refused. The Redcoats were undeterred. In the days leading up to the Battle of New York in 1776, the British attempted peace overtures. Admiral Lord Howe, General Howe's brother, sent a Lieutenant Brown under flag of truce with a letter addressed to George Washington, Esquire. He was met by Joseph Reed, Washington's adjutant. I have a letter, sir, from Lord Howe to Mr. Washington, Brown said. Sir, Reed replied, we have no person in our army with that address. Brown asked how Washington preferred to be addressed. Reed told him, you are sensible, sir, of the rank of General Washington in our army, and sent him packing. Brown returned three days later with a letter addressed to George Washington, Esquire, etc., etc. Well, that should do it. Nope, not good enough. Brown was sent back. The Admiral upped his game, sending a Colonel Patterson to meet with Washington. He carried with him the same letter addressed to George Washington, Esquire, etc., Patterson was informed by Washington's staff that no such document could be delivered because no such person existed to receive it, the only Washington in camp being His Excellency, General Washington. Patterson was eventually admitted in to see the general. He told Washington that Lord Howe didn't mean to derogate the respect or rank of Washington, but brought out the tired old George Washington Esquire, etc., etc. letter. Washington let it lie on the table. Patterson said that he regretted that Howe could not recognize Washington's title without endorsing the legitimacy of the rebellion. One might argue that an enormous British army and navy in America, along with thousands of Hessian mercenaries, lent some legitimacy to the rebellion. Patterson suggested that the etc., etc. implied an acknowledgment of Washington's rank. It so does, Washington told him, and anything. He told Patterson that the document was addressed to a private person, which is no longer who he was. If he was not addressed by his rank, the letter from Howe couldn't be military business, that it was just private correspondence, and he would not accept it. Washington and Admiral Lord Howe, it would seem, were not friends. Patterson tried another tactic, suggesting that all this quibbling over rank was getting in the way of conducting important business, namely the offer of pardons from the British to the rebels. Those who have committed no fault Want no pardon, Washington told him, and sent him back across the British lines. The British kept up this farce all the way to the end of the war. After the siege at Yorktown, when it came time to surrender, the British officers sent to do the deed tried to surrender to the senior French officer, Marshal Rochambeau, who shook his head and pointed to Washington. After the surrender, Washington hosted a dinner for the American, French, and British officers, who finally acknowledged that they were all members of the same military caste. Washington was even addressed as general. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash history's train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about what makes for a good historical train wreck, or you think that General Thomas Gates should have showed George Washington a little more appreciation for saving his life, you can Twitter to at history's train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to history's train wrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we talk about that time when Teddy Roosevelt, with all the forthright go-gettedness he was famous for, shot himself in the foot in a way that he regretted to the end of his days. Because it cost him the presidency. Stay tuned for Teddy Roosevelt's Third Term,
1: Part 1. There was a time when we used to travel the open road and pull into a highway diner and meet fascinating people, hear incredible stories, and learn about new ideas. Now, I was taught at a young age that you should always sit at the counter. Not only did you meet the most interesting people, but you also got the best service and hottest coffee. Now, the open highway brings that concept. (laughs) Not the coffee, the other stuff. To a weekly podcast. Interviews, current events, news, odd stories, and more. I'm your host, Eric Erickson. I'm an author, writer, and journalist, and I've had incredible adventures, and I bring all of those experiences to the show. I know a little bit about everything, and it's just enough to get me into trouble. So join me for the Open Highway, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts.